Today, for our last speaker for the month of August, I have the privilege of introducing this fantastic guy who's hailing from the Sacramento area. He is the president of William Jessup University. Um, please welcome Dr. John Jackson. Thank you. It is so great to be here. I got to tell you some things. I loved coming here to Bay Hills for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is you have such totally buff uh, usher coordinators here. Look at this. Man, my goodness. A couple of us dudes back there offered to help out, and she said, no way, I got this. And she does. She got this. But uh, I'll tell you what, I, woman power, exactly. I, uh, my wife and I started a church many years ago in Nevada, and uh, people wondered, uh, there was no Protestant churches, more than 300 people. God did amazing stuff. Our church grew to about 1,600 to 1,700, and at Easter and Christmas, 4,500 to 5,000. And people asked what our secret was, and it was clearly the power of God and the hand of God. But the other thing is, and the reason why I love this church, is we serve donuts every week, okay? <laughs> and so I just want you to know that donuts are an absolute key. I told some of your donut servers in between the the second and service in this one, that donuts can change people's lives. They really can. So I just celebrate that. I know donuts and health maybe don't go together. But uh, anyway, thanks for letting me come. I was here a couple years ago. And so what happened was I knew on my schedule I was coming to Bay Hills. I, I looked at my calendar and somehow the, the address got messed up. So I just put it into my Apple Maps, uh, Bay Hill Church. And it took me to uh, a new building down the street that uh, I guess is going to be part of the future. God's, God's moving stuff. That's awesome. It was great. So then I looked at the sign, though it said offices, I figured out, okay, I'm in the wrong place. And I kind of remembered, no, it's in the shopping center. So I drove back here because I was in the wrong place, drove back here. But when I got back here, something seemed like a little off <laughs> since the last time I was here. So you actually have moved to space. So I'm feeling a little disequilibrium. So I was thinking about disequilibrium. Yesterday, um, we had our orientation weekend at William Jessup University. We had between 800 and 900 people there, about 350 brand new students, and then dads and moms and grandmas and grandpas all joining in. And uh, it was an amazing day, a lot of disequilibrium, because people were taking their kids to college, leaving them for the first time, and moms were crying, and dads were crying. It was just really an interesting thing. Uh, how many of you have kids in the room? Uh, and, and is this true if you have kids that are older? Uh, your prayer life radically changed when your children got a driver's license, right? Like when that moment happened, like you started praying the moment you maybe conceived and had children and all that, when they were literally praying for them. But when they got a driver's license, you discovered for all, time and all eternity, you are out of control, okay? So this is what happened to me last night. I knew I needed to get up early, come here. But my 20-year-old, that's my last child. We got five from 34 to 20. And a lot of times people look at us and go like, oh, you guys are a blended family, right? And we go, no, just non-strategic. So we have five, five kids and 20-year-old's last one. He was driving back from Southern California. And he wasn't going to get home till like midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And I just, I couldn't sleep. I just was like going, okay, I got to keep praying. I know the Lord's taking care of him, but I just felt like I needed to give an extra covering. So, hey, take your teaching notes out. I'll tell you what I want to talk about today. Um, I have actually um, shared this particular teaching uh, about three other times. And uh, I tell you that because it's unusual for me to come to a church and share a teaching that I've done before. And, and here's the reason why. Um, usually a pastor will either assign me a topic or they'll say, just share whatever's on your heart. And normally what I try to do is just see what God is doing that week and just what I feel like he's saying. And then I'll come deliver that word that's like fresh that week that I feel like God has been impressing on my heart. But I've shared this teaching a couple other places. Every single place I share this teaching, 
uh, people say, you know, that was what God wanted me to hear specifically. So that's just what I'm praying is that you'll receive today uh, as coming directly from the Lord, not from me, but from him to you. And it, and it has to do with this subject. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a messed up culture? And especially what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a person of faith in a culture that's kind of become toxic. It's demonizing and polarizing. We've, we've, we've forgotten the ability or lost the ability to talk to each other when we disagree. And I particularly think about this as it relates to the topic, topics of God and government and you. So you have some teaching notes in your program. Get those out. Some of you have a condition called blank anxiety. You get very panicked if there's blanks on a page and they're not filled in by the time you leave church. And I will do my very best to get them filled in for you, okay? So uh, let me just start with Romans chapter 13. We don't have time to unpack all of it today, but if you were to read the Bible and go, what's the key passage in all of Scripture about the role of government? It would be in Romans 13. We're not going to read it today. Later in your time, you can read it. Just let me give you three things that it says. Three things it says. Number one, civil government is part of God's purpose for the world. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, hey, here's the deal. If I was in charge, what I would do is abolish all governments. We'd have no government. We'd just have God. Government would be done away with. Well, maybe in a perfect world that could happen, but i got to tell you this. Did you know in the pages of Scripture, God actually established the family, and He established the church, and He established government. Government is designed by God to fulfill his purposes in the world. God has a plan for government. That's local government, school government, state, national. God has a plan for governmental authority. Here's the second one. This will help you. That government leaders are servants of God. Now, if you're anything like me, you're going, <laughs> you haven't seen my government. You know, if you've been in our local city council, if you've seen our county, if you've seen our state, man, they are not serving God. Well, here's what I want you to know. Governments were designed by God to fulfill His purpose. And people who serve in government are servants of God. Now, they may be disobeying. They, they may be going the wrong direction. They may not be doing what they're supposed to do. But God's design is that government exists for God's purposes. And people who serve in government are servants of God. Third truth is, all government authority is temporary. How many of you know the United States has existed for more than 200 years? That's awesome. That's amazing. We'll talk a little bit about our heritage. But no human government is permanent. Even when life seems chaotic, spinning out of control, or you see a government that says, hey, we've been around for you know 200 years or 500 years, no human government is eternal. The Bible tells us, especially in Philippians 2, that there's a moment in time when everybody's going to kneel, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God is the only one who's sovereign and eternal over the whole planet. So if you get those three things, government was designed for, by God's purpose and for God's purpose. Number two, government leaders are servants of God. And number three, governments are temporary. You know, 50 years, 100, 1,000, they're, they're temporary. Eventually, God's the only one who rules over everything. All right, you set? Now, I want to share something with you from American history and I know your reaction, like, ugh, this is a college president, he's going to do the academia thing, he's going to start talking, and wah, wah, wah. Well, I promise you, uh, I'm going to go very quick. Uh, I fly on an air, a lot of airplanes, and when I fly on airplanes, they say something like this, put your seat in the upright and locked position, put your tray table up, and buckle your seatbelt, be ready to go. We're going to fly, okay, folks? And I'm going to get you out on time. Which, by the way, I think is a really cool thing for the third service, because I could go as long as I want. <laughs> 
And by the way, the, I am funny. <laughs> but the thing is, is that the 830 service comes in fully caffeinated. And I know about the last service. The last service of every church, you were late. I promise you, it doesn't matter if the service is 11.15, 11.30, 11.45. You were late. Because that's just the last service. How many of you had extra stress today getting your kids ready to go to church? I don't know why it is, but Sunday morning, getting ready for church is the most ridiculous time any day of the week. We, we do this every day, but Sunday morning, oh my goodness, people lose their minds on Sunday morning. I think it's a spiritual thing. So this came, this came from the diary of George Washington. This is not a public speech. This is his personal diary, just writing between he and God. This is what he wrote. Let my heart, gracious God, be so affected with your glory and majesty that I may discharge those weighty duties which thou requirest of me. Again, I've called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Thou gavest thy son to die for me and has given me assurance of my salvation. That was the first president of the United States. That, that, that's powerful. What, a, what a, an amazing thing. Uh, there also was a study done about a 10-year period of time at the University of Houston. They analyzed 15,000 writings of the early, church, or the early founders of our nation. So you think about back then, by the way, they didn't have uh, email, they didn't have websites, they didn't have Twitter. By the way, if we wanted to fix our culture, don't you think getting rid of Twitter at least for our political leaders. Uh, no. <laughs> so, by the way, I, I know you're nervous. You're nervous this whole thing. He's going to be political. No, 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 I'm not going to be political. I don't care if you're a D or an R or an I or just fed up. Uh, I, I'm not going to be political. Uh, but I am just going to say they analyzed 15,000 letters from the founders going back and forth. These are the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence, the uh, Federalist Papers, the Constitution of the United States. They analyzed and said, where did their quotes come from? 15,000 handwritten letters from history. And what they found was this. 94% of the quotes, 94% of the quotes in those 15,000 letters came from the Bible. We have this amazing historical heritage in America. And let me just be very frank. We have some awful, terrible, sinful, unjust things in our nation's past. They're awful things. And we have some amazing and awesome and tremendous uh, stewardship of these incredible historical resources. So we have some awful, terrible things and some awesome and amazing things. And how many of you know, in you as a person, you've got some awful, terrible things about you and you've got some awesome and amazing things about you, right? That's the human condition. But in our nation, we have this incredible stewardship. And so here's my question. I was raised, I'm 57, so I was raised in the 60s and 70s. In the 1960s and 1970s, there was an era where the church was getting all freaked out about the end of the world. There was a famous book called Late Great Planet Earth. It was kind of like an early shock version of what many of you have heard with the Left Behind series. And what I discovered was the more the church started thinking about heaven and the end of all time, the more we cared less about the world around us. In other words, we kind of got to the point where we thought, hey, this is all going to burn anyway. We're going to eventually go to heaven, be caught up in the air, and we're going to go to heaven, so right now doesn't matter. And unfortunately, what that did is it got more and more Christians to pull back from being an influence in the world. So I want to talk about this by using a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's in the, the message, which is kind of a paraphrase, kind of a common language. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Read along with me. I'm going to stop a couple of times and make some comments. Friends, this world is not your home. 
So don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. I don't have time to unpack it, but folks, that is a great phrase. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. Let me stop there. If I was to interview your neighbors, if I was to interview your town, if I was to interview all of California or all of the United States and say, what do you think about Christians? The answer a lot of people would give, I know all about Christians. Christians are mean. They're angry. They're condemning. They're judgmental. Now, by the way, I can hear you say right now, hey, that's not me. I'm a Christian and I'm not mean. I'm not angry. I'm not condemning. I'm not judgmental. And by the way, part of what I love about this church is this church is connected to its community. I love about this church that you understand that geography is destiny. I love about this church that the last time I came here, I got a real sense that you not only care about Honduras, which is awesome, you also care about the neighborhoods of your community. You realize God placed you here and where you live and where you work and where you play. That's all part of God's assignment for you. I love that about this church. But if you said to people in your town or your neighborhood or our state or the nation, what do you think about Christians? Mean, angry, condemning and judgmental are used words that would be used pretty commonly. Well, look what this passage says. It says, make the master proud of you by being good citizens. Respect the authorities, whatever their level. They're God's emissaries for keeping order. It is God's will that by doing good, you might cure. And I want you to think about Mr. T right here. You might cure the ignorance of the fools who think that you're a danger. You can learn a lot from movies. Who, uh, but who think you're a danger to society. Exercise your freedom by serving God, not by breaking the rules. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. Love your spiritual family. Revere God. Respect the government. Now, it would be easy right now to pick on the city closest to us, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about Las Vegas. Let's just talk about Las Vegas for just a second. When I say Las Vegas, what's the other phrase that comes to your mind? Casinos or Sin City. Las Vegas is Sin City. You know they got these big billboards. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know that's a lie, by the way. But you think about Las Vegas, you go Sin City. And by the way, in the early church, Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome, horrifying immorality, crazy stuff. And that's the context that God birthed the early church. Well, I was many years ago at a conference with a, a pastor who became a friend of mine. He pastors in Las Vegas in Sin City. And, and you know, his reaction at first was to kind of just make his church a good, safe place in the midst of this really immoral environment. And then he had an encounter with God. And how many of you know when you have an encounter with God, that can change everything in a blink of an eye? Here's what he said. Several years ago, in a time of intense soul searching, the Lord ask me this startling question. So this is God talking to the pastor while he's praying or something. Who gave you the right to bargain off my property? Though it was a simple question, it produced a major paradigm shift in my thinking. In a moment of revelation, I felt I understood the purpose behind the question. Like many others, now listen to this, I had sat down at that table of unilateral disarmament with the enemy and I said to the enemy, in effect, this, these words, quote, don't bother us, and we won't bother you. You can have the kingdoms of this world, entertainment, the arts, media, 
polit- athletics, law, economics, and we'll take our Sunday school programs, our Bible clubs, our Christian conferences, and our home Bible studies. If you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. A lot of us have, as Christians have kind of behaved that way about the world. And we've said, look, you know, the reality is is that uh, this world's going to burn. How, how many of you remember the original version, not the, the second and the third, because I don't know much about them, but the original God-ordained version of Star Trek? Anybody remember Star Trek? Okay. Well, in the original version of Star Trek, you know, Captain Kirk, he'd be on the planet fighting a big, huge animal or some sort of thing like that. Things would be going crazy, and he would yell out, beam me up! And they'd have that little transporter system and boom, beaming back up to the system. That was awesome. And uh, by the way, I'm still waiting for that. You know, we have driverless cars coming now, but we got no transporter systems. Uh, I want to figure out the way to do that. But anyway, so let me just ask you this. Have you ever wondered, if you're a follower of Jesus, why when we receive Jesus as our Savior, we recognize that he died on a cross for our sins, our past can be forgiven, we humble ourselves and surrender before God, and we say yes to him and we say the prayer, why doesn't God just beam us up? Why don't you just go boom? Because by the way, I think that'd be very impressive. If every time pr- people prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, they got beamed up, that would make an impact in the world, right? But for some reason, God doesn't beam us up. He keeps us here. I believe if God keeps us here, that must mean he has a mission. He must have a message. He must have something for us to do on the planet and not beam us up right away. So here's what I want to say to you. I think God is calling you. I think he's calling the church to be engaged in society. I think there's a purpose for government and I want to help you on this journey. Now I'm going to go real fast. We've been going slow so far. I'm going to go really, really fast and you're going to have to write fast, but I want to give you just a few things to start your journey. Some of you, by the way, you already know exactly what you're supposed to do. The job you're doing, the neighborhood you live in, the assignment you have in our society, you are living out what God's called you to do. And by the way, I know the heart of your pastor. The heart of your pastor is, this is not sacred right now, and what you do at your work is secular. In other words, sometimes people make that terrible decision. They go like, okay, this is sacred at church. When I go serve on a mission trip, that's sacred. But, you know, when I go to work, when I mow the lawn... When I change a kid's diaper, when I take the trash out, that's secular. Did you know that's bad theology? That's bad thinking. When you're at work tonight or tomorrow, you are on assignment. These folks were amazing missionaries. They, they loved God. They felt called to God, served for two years. But I was able to talk to them during the first and second service. Did you know when they're a police officer and they're a nurse, they're on equal assignment, equal missionary calling as when they were in Honduras? There is never a moment in time when you're off duty, if you're a follower of Jesus. So if if that's clear in your head, how do you find your place? Number one, write this down. Pray for peace and for those in authority. I got to be honest with you. This whole idea of praying for peace did not sit well with me originally because I think of Christians being very disruptive. But the Bible tells me that believers are supposed to pray for peace. Look at this. First Timothy chapter two. I urge then, first of all, and by the way, this is in first century Rome, the the culture's in chaos, it's messy, it's immoral, the government is totally whacked, They're, they're, they're starting to persecute Christians, and he says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. Somewhere in your notes, write down Romans 14, 17. I don't have time to unpack it, but Romans 14, 17, it says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Those were the theological debates and controversies of that day. Kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. When Christians come into environments, we are to shift atmospheres to bring righteousness, peace, and joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, your pastor's coming back next week. And when he comes back, that's going to be an awesome thing. And he can keep everything calmed down and move the church forward. But I'm only here for one week, so I plan to mess you up, okay? (laughs) So I'm going to mess you up. And what I want you to do in the next few minutes, do not raise your hand. I'll tell you this multiple times. Do not raise your hand to this. Please don't raise your hand because it'll kind of, it'll, it will, it will mess up what I'm trying to create in here. So don't raise your hand. Do not raise your hand. Do you ever struggle with praying for this president? Don't raise your hand. Do you ever struggle with praying for this president? Or did you ever struggle with praying for the last president? Don't raise your hand. If you struggle for praying for this president, or you struggle praying for the last president, and by the way, I'm not talking here anything about D or R or I or fed up. I'm just telling you, if you struggle with praying for this president, or you struggle with praying for the last president, it may be that you've gotten caught up in the political spirit of our age that is so toxic that we demonize and polarize people. We can't sit at the table with people we disagree. God is calling Christians to be people of peace. Now, by the way, I don't mean the issues and the politics are not important. They are super important. I'm just telling you that if you've ever had a city council member that you couldn't pray for because you were so ticked at, or a school board that you couldn't pray for, or a county commission, or a state legislature, or a federal government, here in first century Rome... When people were persecuting Christians, it was right on the edge of Christians being fed to the lions when 1 Timothy was written. Paul says, pray for everybody in authority and pray that we could live peaceful and godly and quiet lives. So if you've ever struggled with praying for this president or for the last president, you're in really good company. But I'm telling you, Part of what God wants for the body of Christ to grab hold of is that we need to pray for peace and for all those in authority. If you are totally uncomfortable, I'm not finished. Number two. And by the way, I didn't know this until the the last service. I happened to walk out and I saw that this verse is is on the exits going out the church. I love that. Love that. Uh, Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly before God. That is what Micah 6, 8, it's a famous passage. Somebody in this church family put it up on the exit doors. It says, he has showed you, O man, what is good. What does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So I want to just quickly mess you up. Please do not raise your hand. Do not raise your hand at this, okay? Don't raise your hand. Anybody in this room, don't raise your hand. Know the Christian position on homelessness and hunger and poverty. Does anybody know, don't raise your hand, the Christian position on public education? Does anybody in this room know the Christian position on medical care for the indigent? Does anybody in this room know the Christian position on immigration? Do you know the Christian position on foreign policy? Now, by the way, I don't think there's a single Christian position on any one of those tough issues. But I do know this. If we're supposed to 
act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before God? If we as Christians are so disconnected from our culture that we have no understanding of what God's Word and what the people of God should lean into about those issues, and what do we do about homelessness, and what do we do about poverty, and what do we do about public education and medical care and immigration and foreign policy, those are all super important issues, right? But if Christians say, look, we're not going to get our hands dirty with that, we're not going to engage with any of that stuff, if we won't get involved, guess who gets involved? People whose hearts are far from God. People who don't have the value system. People worry all the time, oh, you know, the way we set up our government is separation of church and state. Folks, I don't have time to unpack all this, but please don't fall subject to that absolute distortion and lie. Thomas Jefferson in 1803 wrote uh, wrote a letter to a group of churches, and he basically said that there was a wall of separation to keep the state from influencing the church. There was the expectation that church would be involved in affecting the state because people who have moral values, people who have a God-honoring orientation will get involved in their communities. In just a moment, I'll read you some quotes to that effect. I really believe we have to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. I don't know, by the way, an answer to any one of those single issues I raised. I just know that people who love God and who love His Word, need to figure out what it means to be just, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before Him, and to be engaged in all those issues. Third thing, we need to be salt and light in the world. Matthew 5 tells us that we're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can we be made salty again? Some of you know the background. In the first century, they didn't have refrigerators and freezers. So why did they need salt? Salt was a preservative. It was kind of a little form of refrigeration. It helped preserve meat. Second thing salt did, it was an antiseptic or a curative. It's kind of a crazy picture, but think of an open wound and then pouring some salt in. Ah, it, it would just burn, but, but what it does is it's antiseptic. It helps to cleanse, so it preserves, it cleanses, and then salt also flavors. That's how we're supposed to be to the world. But if Christians have lost their saltiness, if Christians are mean-spirited and angry and condemning and judgmental, then the world goes like, well, I don't need that. Now, we're also supposed to be the light of the world. You can take your phone You can take your Android, your iPhone, you can do the flashlight thing, and you can take a dark room and bring some light into it. I really believe everywhere Christians go, we should shift the atmosphere. Now, I love this couple right here. I love their heart for the Lord, and I love the fact they said yes. They took their three precious babies. They went to to Honduras. That's where God called them to go. I love that they said yes to that assignment. You may never get called to go around the world, but I wonder how many of us are called to go across the street. Like... Don't, this, this one's okay to raise your hand unless you're sitting next to him. Does anybody have difficult neighbors on their street? Okay. Like sometimes the call isn't to go around the world. Sometimes the call is to go across the street. Now, I know maybe this will be recorded, so I won't give a lot of details, but I recently had breakfast with a neighbor of mine. And the neighbor's in an entirely different place spiritually than, than where I'm coming from. And so I just want to tell you, when we had breakfast together, guess what happened spiritually? There was nothing that happened spiritually. I didn't take my Bible and beat him over the head. I didn't make sure that I prayed for the meal and just cast out demons. None of that stuff. But every part of our meal was spiritual. Because remember, there's no sacred secular divide. So what happened when I broke bread with that guy, he's my neighbor, uh, we ended up having a really awesome talk. We ended up having a good conversation, talked about families, talked about life. So maybe you're not called to go around the world, but maybe across the street. Maybe in your workplace, you're like to to shine the light, like you're the person who brings hope into the atmosphere of your work. 
Like your work may be tense and stressed and maybe it's negative and destructive, but you're there on purpose. Look what John Adams, the second president of the United States, said. We have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a shale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That's the foundations of the United States. We need people who love God and honor His Word to be engaged in public society. Alexis Tocqueville, about 70 years after the nation was founded, came to observe America. And just quick, you've probably heard this phrase before. America's great because she's good. If America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. That's a good word. That is a good word. Now, folks, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to close. This is pastor talk. It doesn't mean 60 seconds, but I'm going to take about four and a half minutes. I'm going to read nine manifestos, nine manifestos that came from a guy named John Dickerson. I just think they're really strong. I want to share them to you. I hope they stir your heart. Your church models so many of the things I've talked about, but maybe you're on assignment somewhere and you're not even thinking that way. Maybe where you are in the school board, maybe where you are in city government or on the water district or state legislature, maybe the state agency or county agency you serve in, maybe the business you serve in, maybe the neighborhood you live in. You, you are on assignment, but maybe you haven't been thinking about it that way. Here's nine manifestos. Number one, we'll remain rooted to the Christian scriptures. The Bible is God's word, and we've got to keep making rooted to those scriptures and their life-giving direction. Number two, we will train our young. In a society of educated ignorance and blindness, we'll train our young in the freedom, knowledge, and power of Christian truth. Number three, we'll be known for doing good. In a world where Christians are labeled as bigots or backward, we'll be known for doing good, serving the least of these and loving our neighbors. Really quickly, you know the fires have been happening? Horrifying. Whenever there's fires, floods, earthquakes, devastation and destruction, one of the things I watch for is how does people of faith respond? Did you know that in the fires, it's the faith community that's been literally surrounding people in these places where there's devastation. People are giving their time and their money and their labor. And I know you and this church have that heartbeat. That's how God often opens the door. People go like, I don't like Christians. They're mean. They're angry. They're judgmental and condemning. Oh, by the way, it's Christians who have flooded these communities and brought relief and brought encouragement. And it opens the door to share the good news of God's love. Number four, we'll dignify all people as image bearers of God. In a world where people are treated as commodities or as opponents, we'll dignify all people as image bearers of God. Real quick, one more quick story, and I'll read the rest of them very rapidly. I'm the president of a conservative Christian college. We say on the sign coming in, William Jessup University, Christ-centered higher education. And like I told you before, geography is destiny, right? So we're 18 miles from the state capital. We're the closest Christian college to the capital of the state of California. What happens in California does not stay in California. What happens in California gets spread across the country. So I have Christian college president friends who go like, oh my goodness, John, if that legislation passes in California, it will come to our state. So what happens in California doesn't stay in California. So about a year and a half, I was in a room with uh, five members of the LGBTQ caucus in California. They affect legislation in California. And we were in the room, and it's very clear we had some areas of disagreement. And I just felt like God asked me to say this. So before the meeting got started, I said, hey, guys, would you, would you mind if I shared something? They said, okay, great, because we're going to talk about disagreements and legislation and all that. And what I said was this. I just want you to know that I believe that God loves you and that you are created in the image of God and that you have value and that you're priceless, 
priceless in the sight of God. And because of that, I want you to hear this from me. I love you. I care about you. You have value and worth. And we know we have disagreements, but you have value and worth in the eyes of God and then in my heart. I just said that. was 60 seconds. Two of the men who were in the room started weeping. So I just stopped for a moment. And then I said, could you just tell me what, what, what's happening? And the two men said this, you know, we know we have huge disagreements. We've talked to you before. We know policy-wise we're like on opposite ends of the spectrum. But we've never had a Christian tell us before that we had value and that God loved us and that they cared about us too. If Christians are mean-spirited, judgmental, angry, and condemning, it's no wonder people don't come towards us. They run away from us. What I love about this church is I think you're very real. I think you know geography's destiny. He has placed you in this community as a church body for an assignment. You are on mission everywhere you go. Very quickly, I'm going to do the end. Uh, the worship team is going to come out in just a minute. We're going to close in worship and, and stewardship as we do that. I want you to hear these words. We will be ambassadors. We're ambassadors to people everywhere we go. We'll love our persecutors. In a world where opponents are vilified and crucified, we're going to love our persecutors. We'll remain calm. Instead of being driven by fear, instead of being panicked, um, we're going to just press in and remain calm because we know God's in control. And then last two, we'll be invincible. In a world where we're discriminated against often, prejudged, and even persecuted, we will be invincible as we serve God's purposes. And finally, we will be fearless. Close your eyes with me. As you close your eyes, I just want to pray over this body. I have such a deep appreciation for what I think is the character and heart of this place. You have an amazing pastor, an incredible legacy. You have huge fruit of your ministry. But God's not done with you. In fact, I don't even think God's really started. I think you're like in the first or second inning of what's going to happen down the road. So I just want to pray over you. Holy Spirit, would you be with my friends here at Bay Hills Church? Would you touch them deeply? Lord, this, this teaching was meant for somebody. Maybe it's meant for everybody, but it's meant for somebody in this room. Somebody has an assignment from you. Somebody has something they're supposed to do. Somebody has a calling they're supposed to respond to. So Jesus, would you minister to the women and men in this room? Give them an understanding and encouragement. Lord, if we struggle praying for this president or the last one or anybody in authority, just forgive us for that, God. We just get caught up in all the same stuff everybody else does would you just cause us to pray for people and even god maybe especially people we disagree with and we're angry at their policies and their behaviors just help us to pray for them uh, and lord i pray that as we pray that you would bring peace righteousness and joy in the power of the holy spirit every room that we step into lord god i thank you for this church i pray blessing over its ministry thank you for the pastor and the leaders here we love you god thank you for your love for us amen